Open up your Bibles to Psalm number 69. And there was something that stood out to me in um, the psalm that Charlie was reading this morning. Psalm 126, and we don't have to turn there, but there's something referenced in the opening verses about uh, a recognition of the heathen, of the gladness and the joy, the change that was that had taken place in the redeemed. And that's what we should be thankful for. And that's what we want to talk about here today. The title of the message is Magnify Him with Thanksgiving. And I want to read through the entire psalm, Psalm 69, before we get into it. But again, David being the writer of this one as well, this is what he's exhorting to us here. Look, if you will, in Psalm 69, verse 1. Save me, O God, for the waters are come in unto my soul. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I am come into deep waters where floods overflow me. I am weary of my crying. My throat is dried. Mine eyes fail while I wait for my God. I wonder if we've mourned for the loss like that. Verse 4, They that hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of mine head. They that would destroy me, being mine enemies, wrongfully are mighty. Then I restored that which I took not away. O God, thou knowest my foolishness and my sins are not hid from thee. Let not them that wait on thee, O Lord God of hosts, be ashamed for my sake. Let not those that seek thee be confounded for my sake, O God of Israel. Because for thy sake I have borne reproach, shame hath covered my face. I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien unto my mother's children. For the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up, and the reproaches of them that reproached Thee are fallen upon me. When I wept and chastened my soul with fasting, that was to my reproach. I made sackcloth also my garment, and I became a proverb to them. They that sit in the gate speak against me, and I was the song of the drunkards. Verse 12, But as for me, my prayer is unto thee, O Lord, in an acceptable time, O God, and the multitude of thy mercy hear me in the truth of thy salvation. Deliver me out of the mire, and let me not sink. Let me be delivered from them that hate me, and out of the deep waters. Let not the water flood overflow me, neither let the deep swallow me up, and let not the pit shut her mouth upon me. Hear me, O Lord, for thy loving kindness is good. Turn unto me according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. And you might mark verse 16 if you haven't marked it in the past. And hide not thy face from thy servant, for I am in trouble. Hear me speedily. Verse 16 and verse 17 can't be separated. This is a heart of a man who's in trouble, who in the opening verses is overwhelmed by the waters around him. And yet verse 16 proclaims God is good. Even to a man in such affliction? Oh, absolutely, because he does not change. Verse 17, And hide not thy face from thy servant, for... I'm in trouble. Hear me speedily. Draw nigh unto my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of mine enemies. Thou hast known my reproach. Thou hast known my shame. Thou hast known my dishonor. Mine adversaries are all before thee. Reproach hath broken my heart, and I am full of heaviness. And I looked for some to take pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me also gall for my meat, and in my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Let their table become a snare before them, and that 
which, and that which should have been for their welfare, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened that they see not, and make their loins continually shake. Pour out thine indignation upon them, and let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. Let their habitation be desolate, and let none dwell in their tents, for they persecute him whom thou hast smitten, and they talk to the grief of those whom thou hast wounded. Add iniquity unto their iniquity, and let them not come into thy righteousness. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living, and not be written with the righteous. So far, I know it's hard to see the thanksgiving in this psalm, but keep listening. Verse 29, but I am poor and sorrowful. Let thy salvation, O God, set me up on high. I will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving, which is where we get our title. This also shall please the Lord better than an ox or bullock that hath horns and hoofs. The humble shall see this and be glad, and your heart shall live that seek God. For the Lord heareth the poor and despiseth not his prisoners. Let the heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moveth therein. For God will save Zion and will build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and have it in possession. The seed also of his servants shall inherit it, and they that love his name shall dwell therein. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we consider this season of thanksgiving, I pray, Father, that it's not some national holiday to us who have been forgiven of so much. I feel, Father, that this should be the most precious time for us. We should be this thankful always. But in this time in which we've set aside time from our secular jobs, very likely times from our daily routines, Father, help us to not just be thankful for what's on our tables, but to be thankful for all that you have done. For we know, Lord, that the the thoughtfulness and the wisdom was from before the foundation of the world. And Lord, how we ought to give thanks for your care and your compassion toward us. As you look down from heaven, none deserved it, none sought after it, none required it, none were even curious about it. As we hear of Noah preaching righteousness for 120 years, none considered it. Likely this psalm would apply to him, most probably derided him, humiliated him, poked fun at him. Help us in this day, Father, as the psalm that we read in Sunday school, to be thankful to have joy and rejoicing, to be glad for the things that thou hast done. And Lord, in this meager message that we bring before you, I pray, Father, your voice is heard, that in these examples of the things that we should be thankful for, we are only filled with memories of just how good you truly are to us, and, and that is only the beginning of understanding as far as that goes. And Father, we're so thankful for this church, for our community for what we were able to take part in on Friday night, Father. And we pray, Lord, that for us, for our sister churches, for our community, it's not seen as some gimmick. But Father, we are truly thankful. And we truly want to have a connection with our community, with our neighbors. We want to be known as a loving church that also has joy over the good news that we've been charged to share. And we are thankful, Father, for that opportunity. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Magnify him with thanksgiving. Look at verse 30. I will praise the name of God with song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. Now, folks have poked fun at me sometimes when I sing, uh, even over here with the quartet. Sometimes I never look up. Sometimes I don't smile enough. Uh, Sometimes I'm too focused. A lot of folks think basses have it easy because we're the very bottom line, so it's always right there. Uh, But we 
We shouldn't be able to sing without a smile. We shouldn't be able to sing without joy. I think of the, the song I, I had hoped to be able to sing today, The Eye of the Sparrow, and, and he sings in the chorus that I sing because I'm happy. Amen. I sing because I'm overjoyed. I'm sing be, I sing because I have relief over the oppression I deserve. I sing because I have eternal rejoicing rather than eternal conflict with God. And that is all I have ever earned was death and judgment of God. But because of the blood of the Lamb, I have freedom. Because of the blood of the Lamb, I can sing. Because of the blood of the Lamb, as we saw in the psalm, we can laugh and smile and be overjoyed. Think of that. Uh, and I, I love it, so I'm going to turn to it. John 16, those last few verses. I know my in-laws have heard me for years now read this, so they're going to have to hear it again. In the very end of John 16, my favorite set of texts. There's something in the words of Jesus here. Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered, every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And I am not alone, because the Father is with me. And it actually is applicable to this psalm, because there's typology in the Psalm 69 towards Jesus. And this is what he's referencing too. I'll be alone. I will, I will be in need of comfort, but there will be none to comfort me. Look at verse 33. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Now, if Jesus speaks of forgiveness and it's bigger than we could ever manufacture, bigger than we could ever conceive, the idea of Jesus-like forgiveness, and Jesus speaks of love and it's a love that's bigger than anything we can manufacture or anything that we could even conceive of, then when he talks of joy, believe it, brothers. Believe it, sisters. It's bigger than anything we could think of or manufacture. When he says joy, he means joy. Not that squeaky victory the Broncos had last week over Buffalo, but a true victory in which we shall never fall again. We can have joy over that. Our salvation cannot be lost. Our salvation is kept by an almighty, an, infinite, <coughs> an infinitely sovereign God who will never drop us and never, though he might be compelled by our wickedness, never toss us. We have a reason to be thankful and rejoice. Consider this about this psalm. The title for this psalm uh, in my Bible is To the Chief Musician Upon Shoshanim, a psalm of David. And this word Shoshanim means lily. So we are reading a psalm entitled Upon the Lilies. And this is the second psalm, actually. Psalm 41 is also entitled very similarly. And it was the first one entitled. And, and in, that, in Psalm 41, it's actually referencing golden lilies. And... It's the idea of dropping sweet-smelling myrrh and blooming in the fair gardens which skirt the ivory places. It's a beautiful scene and in a beautiful, uh, in the title itself, it, it takes our minds to a, something that we can, we can picture and we can imagine. This one in Psalm 69 is a lily among the thorns. We see the lily in almost every single verse and we see thorns in almost every single verse like a goad, like the prick that we heard about in Sunday school. We see what forced and compelled our situation, do we not? We see the fallen nature as David throughout the psalm owns it. David says, I brought this into myself. And it points back to the fall in Genesis 3, back in the garden. It points back to Adam failing to keep the temple or the garden of Eden and getting kicked out and us with him. 
It points back to the requirement at the end of Genesis 3 for us to take part in the tree of life if we were to ever inherit everlasting life. This psalm is beautiful, but it's also disparaging. It's also heartbreaking in places. Let their table become a snare before them. And then in verses 22 through 28, we, we kind of see the, uh, it, it's labeled in my Bible, the fate of the enemies, but we kind of see David's heart towards his enemies. And what we might expect Jesus, if he were to give into the flesh, his heart towards his enemies, though we know that's not the case. We go into Romans and we can see how we are to treat our enemies. And this might be our heart. It might be our desire for them to, to have these things piled upon them tenfold compared to what they've done unto us. But thankfully, we are not the avenger. God is. This lily that is expressed here in Psalm 69 is poor and sorrowful, yet the salvation of God can set it upon high. The salvation of God is made possible by the lily that's expressed throughout Psalm 69 that survives those thorns. I wonder if you've considered lately how the world practices Thanksgiving. Uh, and we know what they'll do next month. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. But have you ever considered how the world responds to Thanksgiving? In my secular job, uh, there's some younger folks, as you might imagine. I'm not of the younger folk crowd anymore. Um, but they have no idea what Thanksgiving is. I don't know that some of them know what thankfulness is. Uh, I remember when we were back in the office four years ago, uh, to hearing some of them complain about Thanksgiving because it gets in the way of Black Friday. That's all it is for them. Thanksgiving is the day to rest up for the greatest shopping day of the year. And by the way, Black Friday is not what it was originally established to be either. Um, and I don't want to chase that rabbit trail too much. I'll lose you for sure. But uh, look it up. It's very interesting. But what is the purpose of giving thanks? Why should we do it? And it's okay if you're in here and you're, and you're 89 years old to ask yourself that question. You should ask yourself that question every day. What should I be thankful for? Why should I be giving thanks? What is the, the need or the necessity of this practice? <coughs> you should be asking those questions of everything because that's how you separate man's traditions, which by the way, birthdays are also man's tradition, as well as Christmas and Easter. Again, we'll get into that soon. But it's how we separate what man has established for us to do and what God has established for us to do. In this very psalm, he also references what we looked at last week when he talks about how uh, the, the blood of, the, of these animals not being what he requires, not being what, it, what will establish this lily apart from the thorns. So there's some things I want us to be thankful for, or at least to consider that we should be thankful for, and we have five of them. We'll go through them very quickly. Look at verse 16. Hear me, O Lord, for thy loving kindness is good. Turn unto me according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. We can be thankful that God has heard us. Amen. That God has heard this psalm. And that God has heard the writer of this psalm. We're going to look at a little bit more detail in the next point, but think about who David is. Yes, the ruddy young lad. Yes, the one that uh, the Lord had anointed following Saul. And yes, he, he'd gone through quite a few things with Saul, and he's very good friends with Jonathan. We should know more than that David is Jonathan's buddy, I would imagine. There's some things that happened a little later in life. Recall when Uriah was out in the fields and his wife was bathing? Yeah, that's the same David. The same David that wrote this song. And yet he was heard of God. We can be thankful for that. 
Because David, if he were here with us right now, Brother David would say, I should not have been heard of God. I should not have been considered of God. And we would maybe say that Saul was way more wicked than you were. But that's not how this works. You are not in this room because you're better than anyone not in this room. If you're in this room and saved, it's because God saw fit before the foundation of the world to call you unto himself. And he prepared volumes of things that would take place to get to the point in which it was revealed unto you. David had mercy toward the house of Saul many times. We've been reading through uh, Samuel at home. And it's interesting to think about how close David was to vanquishing this enemy that had plagued him. Saul, the king. At one point, David is essentially standing over sleeping Saul. And he proves it by cutting a piece of his skirt and showing him later. I took this. I was this close. Even his men said, should we just take the staff and end it now? Remember the one soldier said, the mighty man said, I could just do it. One fell swoop, one stab, just him will be done. And we'll be out of here before anyone knows. And David says what? Not against the anointed of God. David had great fear over God, not man. And it applies to himself here because as he writes this, he's not talking about, well, at least I'm not like that publican, Saul. He doesn't say, well, at least I'm better than this guy or that guy. He says, be merciful unto me, Father. We can be thankfully hurt us because we've done nothing and will do nothing to require it of God. Won't happen. This is not a go-between proxy that he's praying to here. It's Yahweh, the self-existing one. God, the Father and Creator of the universe. Remember the, the, the whole spectrum thing we talked about. God is God of all these things, and we are whew, this tiny little speck. And yet he thought of some of those specks. And he works in and through some of those specks. We can be thankful for that. What a thing to think that David was praying and being heard of the Father. When we look to the New Testament, we see that the son of David, Jesus, did the exact same thing. He prayed unto the Father. We might think, why would Jesus need to? It's more than just because he's our example. It's more than just because he was teaching us. Think about it, beloved. He went off to himself and prayed a lot of the time. Now, they knew he went and prayed, but they don't know what he prayed. So it wasn't just for our benefit. There is something so precious, more precious than gold, crude oil, and all the wealth of the world in the time spent alone with God the Father. And it was so precious that God the Son also sought after it. We can be thankful the veil has been torn, Amen. that we have access to this throne. What a blessing to know. What a blessing to proclaim, praise the name of God and magnify Him with thanksgiving. Secondly, look at verse 18. David writes, Draw nigh unto my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of mine enemies. We can be thankful that God has drawn us. That he has made a way possible. Amen. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I love that song, but that verse is hard. That verse is, as they say, where the rubber meets the road. 
There's not a one in here that can't relate to that verse. Lord, I feel it. Think of the confession of this hymn writer. Lord, I feel it. I feel it. I love you, Father, but I feel it. I'm prone to wander. I'm prone to leave the God I love. I love you, Father, but I can feel a drawing away. When we cry out for revival, that's what we should be crying out for. Father, help me to not be prone to wander. Help me to not be drawn away. Help me to long for my Mount of Olives time. Help me to long for my time in prayer, my time in your word. Be with me there, Father. And I am so thankful, Father, that you have been thus far. You have so much to be thankful for this season. Turn to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 27. <clears throat> the flesh is so weak. And each day we are reminded of our own tendency to wander. This is that wandering moment for David that we should think about. Not to humiliate a fellow brother, but we should think about this when we read the Psalms that he wrote. Because I assure you, he did. Not out of guilt, but because he knows he was removed as far as the east is from the west from this. 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 1. And it came to pass after the year that was... Uh, the year was expired at the time when kings go forth to battle. Very important part of this chapter. At the time when kings go forth to battle. And David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the children of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David tarried still at Jerusalem. Did you know that David sins in the very first verse of this chapter? It's not Bathsheba that's the first sin in this chapter. It's right there in verse 1. And in case we misinterpreted that this is the time the kings go forth, it's told to us later, but David tarried still at Jerusalem. You want to have revival? Do not tarry where you should not be. As Isaac taught on Wednesday, if the Lord has compelled us to do something or to go somewhere, do it. Go. There is no planning to, there is only do. That's a, a loose quote of Yoda from Star Wars. Verse 2, And it came to pass in an evening tide that David arose from off his bed where he shouldn't have been and walked upon the roof he should not have been of the king's house. And from the roof where he shouldn't have been, he saw a woman washing herself. And the woman was very beautiful to look upon. Today's world, they blame the beauty of the woman they may even blame the woman for being on the roof, but the king wasn't where he should have been. And David sent and inquired after the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, David is not a, a, a monarch to be feared, as he is described in the Bible, but it would have taken some courage to say this to a king, to not just be faithful and go do what he's been told to do but it's presented there. And David sent messengers and took her and she came in unto him and lay with her, which is what you think it is. For she was purified for, from her uncleanness and she returned unto her house. And the woman conceived and sent untold David and said, I am with child. Everybody know how long it takes to have a baby? I just want to make sure because that's important to all of this. This did not happen in two days. 
There was no blue line test. That's what I'm getting at here. And David sent to Joab saying, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Verse six and a half should say, with the intention of confessing unto Uriah what had happened, repenting unto the Lord and hoping to be restored. That's not here. Verse seven, when Uriah was coming to him, David demanded of him how Joab did and how the people did and how the war prospered. And David said to Uriah, go down to thy house, wash thy feet. And Uriah departed out of the king's house and there followed him a mess of meat from the king. Remember when we talked about Jonah and the expense of sin? There's an expense to sin for David as well. He's trying to bury this with meat, with uh, so-called kindness. And Uriah, though, in verse 9, sleeps at the floor of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and went not down to his house. And when they had told David, saying, Uriah went not down into his house, David said unto Uriah, Camest thou not from thy journey? Why then didst thou not go down unto thine house? And Uriah said unto David, The ark, and Israel, and Judah abide in tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields of battle, by the way. Shall I then go into mine house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest and as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. And David said to Uriah, Tarry here today also, and tomorrow I will... Uh, I will let thee depart. So Uriah abode in Jerusalem that day and the morrow. And when David had called him, he did eat and drink before him, and he made him drunk. And at the even, he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of, the, of his Lord, but went not down unto his house. And it came to pass in the morning that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote it, uh, and he wrote in the letter, saying, set, yet, set ye Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle, and retire ye from him, that he may be smitten and die. Probably don't have time to read the entire thing, but there's something very important about Uriah's character. He is faithful to his master throughout this entire chapter. He is faithful to his nation. He is faithful to his king, and he is faithful to his king's God. And the gratitude expressed toward him was to send him to the hottest battle at the front of that battle. And if we were to continue to read on here, to have everyone else essentially retreat back and strand him there. And then the king waited to hear from his messengers how it went. How do you think it was going to go, David? How do you think? I know there's a lot of Davids in the room. Sorry, guys. How did you think that was going to go? Your plan was hatched and it succeeded. Uriah was killed. The headlines on CNN would say he was killed in battle. Way more to the story, is there not? As Nathan would eventually come and expose the sin, thou art the man. He could have said 2 Samuel chapter 11, it was all you, king. You did all of that from the very beginning. Let's summarize. David tarried rather than being with his men. Something that kind of comes up in the words of Uriah as well, does it not? I can't go to my house, to my wife, while our fellow soldiers, while our entire nation is in battle, living in tents, even as the, uh, as the, uh, the ark is as well. I can't go and have the creature comforts of this life while our nation is in danger. David committed adultery rather than being faithful. David attempted to cover it up by bringing Uriah home to be with his wife. David then got him drunk and tried again. 
David then sent Uriah to the hottest battle and left him there without reinforcements to die. Oh, the tangled web of sin. You can't get out of it. Like vines pulling down a fir tree, grasping at every limb, soaking up the sunlight and choking out the, root, the, the trunk, the root of this mighty tree. It is better to not go where you shouldn't be, to not linger where you should have departed, than to ever give in to this temptation. God must take and seal us for his courts above, or we cannot be sealed at all. Thirdly, we can be thankful that he has redeemed us. Look again at verse 18 of Psalm 69, which I have left. It's the same verse that we just considered. Verse 18, draw nigh unto my soul and redeem it. Deliver me because of mine enemies. Absalom was once an enemy of David. Anybody remember who Absalom is? He's David's son. Kind of falling right out of the chapter we just read, that household uh, turmoil that the Lord said that he would permit to happen in David's house. Absalom was uh, counterfeit to that, essentially. We are drawn close according to the text and redeemed. We must be redeemed to be drawn close to an absolutely holy God. What does that mean? There's another reword, reveal. As we're drawn closer and closer to this source of righteous light, some things are revealed in us. Think about Nathan's approach to David there in Psalm, if we, in, or Psalm, in 2 Samuel, if we were to continue to read. It, he, he tells him a story. And David gets riled up about the wrongdoing in that story. And Nathan said, it's you. It's about you. He reveals what we would have said in the previous chapter. David would have known that God knows all things. But Nathan reveals unto David, God knows what you did. God knows every jot and tittle of what just took place. Think about when the baby was in trouble. That he had conceived with Uriah's wife. When the baby dies, David's response tells to his men, who even ask him, you've been mourning without stop. How are you okay now that he's perished? And David's words reveal he knows that God was in control. He knows that God was going to do this thing. And he knows he can't undo it. Beloved, we are not called to undo our sin. Think about that. We are not called to undo our sin. That is the giant banner our nation still waves in the air about things like racism, right? We have to undo. We have to make reparation. No, we have to repent and we have to trust God. We can't undo. David can't undo what he did. He never went up to the battle where he should have gone. He never did. He never did not. We're running into a lot of negatives now. He cannot undo what he did with Uriah's wife. He cannot undo what he did to uh, cover it up. And he cannot undo the death of Uriah. So when Nathan said, thou art the man, we might in the flesh think, oh, David's going to get good and angry and this Nathan guy's going to disappear. We'll never see him in scripture again. David knew there's nothing he could do. God saw it. The only thing left was to repent. And if there's sin in your heart right now, as you approach Thanksgiving or as, as you approach the, the prayer closet this evening in your time of devotion, repent. 
Our God loves repentance. You cannot kill enough animals to cover the sin or undo the sin. You cannot go back and and make peace with those that you have hurt enough to undo the sin. You should go back and restore relationships. You absolutely should forgive, but you must repent. You must repent. Redeemed for His purposes according to His will and not our own. That's why we are to repent to God. Because we weren't redeemed for our own purposes. We were redeemed for His. We must repent to God because He called us for His purposes to accomplish His will, to be used as His instruments, and we have become unclean. We must repent because we are to be used. Oh, how we should give thanks for being made able to dwell with Him. Praise the name of God and magnify Him with thanksgiving. Again, verse 18, God has delivered us. He's removed from bondage. We are removed from bondage. We are free from our enemies. Can they persecute, mock, and torture our flesh? Absolutely. But they cannot steal our inheritance. They cannot touch our souls. Our salvation has been made secure by the blood of the Lamb. Praise the name of God and magnify Him with thanksgiving. We should also make special note of David's phrasing here. In verse 18, Deliver me because of mine enemies. Remember what we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. Peter writes, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. What are they to behold? Our abstaining from fleshly lusts and our honest conversations. That's what they are to see of us. It goes back to Psalm uh, 126, I think it was, that Charlie read for us this morning. It goes back to that. The heathens acknowledge God has done something for them. Flip over there again, especially if you weren't here for Sunday school. What a blessing it was to hear this psalm proclaimed. Psalm 126, when the Lord turned again the captivity of Zion, we were like them that dreamed. Then our mouth filled with laughter and our tongue was singing. Then said they among the heathen, the Lord hath done great things for them. That is glorifying God. That's what Peter's talking about. That is what they should see. That should be their response. God's done something for them. You know what comes next? They say, hey, about that hope. About that hope you got. And we should what? Be ready always to give an answer for the hope that lieth within us. Peter knew some things, didn't he? David is calling on the Lord to deliver him so that God's own name could not be blasphemed by the persecutors. That's the heart of David. That God's name not be blasphemed. Not his own. That they might not be able to say God could not rescue and preserve those who put their faith in him. Fifth and finally, God has poured out his indignation. We can be thankful for that. Verse 24. Verse 24, pour out thine indignation upon them and let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. Now perhaps we might not readily think of this as something that we ought to be thankful for. But had God not poured out his anger upon his son, we would have been utterly consumed by it. And it's interesting to think about hell. I know it's not something we want to think about, probably not this week of all weeks, but you ought to think about it. 
the body as we know it. This is standing before you. How long would I last in eternal hellfire like this? I wouldn't. I'd be utterly consumed. So the bodies, or, or the not the bodies, but the people that are left in their rebellious state, that are sent or dispatched to hell, there's a change that takes place that preserves them for that eternal punishment. We think about Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man's still talking in that story, and we'll see that soon in the Lord's ministry study in the afternoon. He's still conversing with Father Abraham. He's still pleading for even a drop of water that it might cool his tongue. But he's not extinguished. He's not expired. He's not burned up. He's continually tormented in the flame. He's continually. You ever thought about hell like that? It does not end. We got some situations in our life we, we really don't like. Waiting in line at TSA. Don't like it, but eventually it ends. I eventually get to the end of that line, put my shoes back on, and I'm thankful that I didn't bring a bomb that day to the airport. It ends at some point. Cedar Point, where we grew up. Cedar Point. Waiting in those lines. Worse than TSA. Sometimes three hours long. You pray for a lemon ice machine to come up. But eventually the line ends or the ride shuts down and you're not standing there anymore. We don't know anything in this life of eternity. Everything in our lives, especially now in 2023, is consumable. Even paper straws aren't going to last. We don't live in a world where anything is built to last. We don't build things that last. Henry Ford said, I don't make cars that last forever. You'd never need another one. Think about it. The life that we live in, especially as we talked on Friday night, the things we use to make our food for the last hundred years, we've become even more perishable. Nothing points to eternity that we understand and see in this life. That might be the biggest challenge of faith is to see these things on a level that goes way beyond anything we could even conceive. But if we had even an ounce of God's wrath, we would be consumed by it for all time. The rejecters of Christ shall feel the wrath of God for upon who rebelled against the Savior, the wrath has come to the uttermost. 1 Thessalonians 2.16 if, if this were not so, <coughs> it would make God a liar. If hell weren't real, it would make God a liar. If heaven were less than, it would make God a liar. If, if these things were not real and tangible, it would empty hell into a purgatory of souls waiting for God to cave in, to grant them forgiveness based on their merits, on their works, on candles still being lit by the living, on some kind of witchcraft or, or enchantment that would deceive God. And as we follow this train of thought, if that were possible, he's not sovereign. And if he's not sovereign, above all, through all, in all, and if he's not omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent everywhere all at once, then none of this can be true. We can be thankful that it absolutely is. Amen. We can be thankful that nature reveals and reflects this God that's described in the Bible. God is not mocked even by his own holy word. There is a hell. There is a judgment coming. There's a rapture coming very, very soon. Spurgeon wrote, God's indignation is no trifle. The anger of a holy, just, omnipotent, and infinite being is above all things to be dreaded. 
even a drop of it consumes. But to have it poured upon us, as it's described in the psalm, is inconceivably dreadful. If even a drop consumes us. Now remember when we were in Mississippi, uh, Derek Cockrell, this is Milburn's youngest son, uh, he likes hot peppers and hot sauces. And he would talk to Isaac and I about how hot some of that stuff was. And we would ask him about it. He'd say, well, with this one in particular, just a drop is enough. And we would say, just a drop? How would you even taste just a drop? And he says, believe me, more than a drop, you wouldn't, you, your food wouldn't even be digestible. You wouldn't even want to approach the plate again. That's just hot sauce. Not God's wrath. Hot sauce. And not even a drop of some of that stuff. If you just have it on the oil of it on your fingers and oh, do something like this, you pay for that all day with weeping. That's just the oil from a pepper and the impact it has on this body. We're talking about things on an everlasting and eternal scale and the wrath of God not being a drop, but a pouring out inconceivably dreadful. As God cannot lose those who are saved due to his absolute holiness, likewise his wrathful anger shall not lose hold of those at enmity or at hostility or in rebellion with him. We should strive to be very careful how we align ourselves with this world, beloved. This Thanksgiving, I am not thankful for anything that this world has given me. I am thankful for creation. I'm thankful for what God has accomplished. I'm thankful that God has brought me here. I'm thankful for being called to preach and used to preach. I'm thankful for the purposes that God has for me. But as for me, I produce nothing of tangible worth if God is not involved in it. I can do nothing apart from Jesus. This is not just me. This is the truth he proclaimed. We. He's talking to the disciples when he said that. He was talking to his church of whom the gates of hell could not withstand. And he still said, without me. Now, he had all the power of heaven and earth when he granted the great commission to that church. But he still said, apart from me. That's something to be thought about, church. If we ever were to depart from him, we can do nothing. We can do nothing. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, ye have, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do ye think that the Scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Think of the effectiveness the Bible proclaims of a righteous man's prayers. David, if we just took him at that one scenario, that one event that we read, we might wonder, how did God ever use this man? How did anything ever get done? How was anything ever accomplished that would glorify God? David repented. Boy, the flesh says something like that. 
That's it, just something little like that. David repented. That's all he did. He didn't have to offer sacrifices. He didn't have to work off a, 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 a penance. He didn't have to try and make those things right. See, that's what, in our afternoon studies, we look at the Lord's ministry, that was the thought of the Jews. These things have to be worked off. Think of the prodigal son that we just talked about last Sunday afternoon. The thought of those servants in the kingdom as that son approached was he needs to be shamed. He needs to earn his way back in here. Don't act like you don't do that too. I've got my inner circle of people I trust and the people have been put out. They've got to earn their way back in here. That's not how the church operates, beloved. That's not how God operates. In everything we've been commanded to do, we're called to do it in love. We're called to be Christ-like in everything, especially with the navigating of this little tiny oar here, this little guide, this tongue, that is a flame that cannot be quenched. If we rebuke, we do it in love. If we reprove, we do it in love. If we remove, we do it in love. If we restore, we do it in love. If we baptize, we do it in love. If we travel to the mission and preach, we do it in love. If we go and preach for Caldwell, we do it in love. As I walk back to the house at 42 years old, if I don't do it in love, my knees will scream at me. Think about it like that, because we're a body. If I abuse the rest of my body because the rest of my body just doesn't do things on its own, I have to take steps gingerly. I have to be cautious with what I take in. This is the commandment of the church. Be ye thankful. Praise the name of God and magnify him or make him large with thanksgiving. If we've been proclaimed to present the gospel, which as we've said is good news, we ought to act like it. This is the best way for us to do it, to magnify or make large our God through thanksgiving. We ought to appear very, very, very thankful this week, beloved. This nation, 